Welcome everyone, I'm Sam Sebastian, and you're listening to How Are You Doing Really? In today's episode, I am joined by one of my friends, Elohim Leafar, or Elo. Um, He identifies as a human, a writer, a magic worker, someone who is dedicated to sharing his experiences with the world. And I just want to add to that, he's been one of my biggest supporters of this podcast. And it's just been a huge um, <laughs> um, blessing to actually have you just support me so much uh, from the beginning, um, from, from just encouraging me to continue to share more episodes, to, to continue to... Um, record and and also just with your support of sharing the podcast on your platforms and i just i want to say thank you so much and i really um energetically have have just felt so held and supported by you so thank you and uh it's an honor to actually uh have you on today um if, if you'd like, maybe uh, just say hello and um, yeah. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, that's the idea. I think that we need support each other. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I really know who was expecting this. Uh, I really love the idea of the podcast. Uh, when I remember when you shared the first episode, I was uh, very happy for that. And if I, I am subscribed to the podcast, so every time that I receive the notification, can be a Sunday, can be December 31, I immediately go, I stop doing everything that I'm doing, and I just go to listen to the podcast because it's very nice. It's a very nice experience, connect with other people and listen what they are saying uh, about healing work, about their personal life, about the work that they are doing uh, with everything happening now. So uh, the, the real work here is you who are really doing magic here. This is pretty awesome. What are you doing? Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's sweet to really hear that reflected back and, and also to take that in. I know sometimes I have somewhat of a barrier of taking in um, that kind of nourishing and supportive um, feedback. So So thank you. And I also want to share how we met, if, if that's okay with you. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, so me and my partner, Finn, were in New York City, I think it was back in 2018. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we were there, or maybe at the beginning of 2019, um, we were there leading a uh, Tantra workshop and... Um, it's called the elements of desire. So leading um, men through a practice of uh, connecting to their sexuality, um, their life force energy from the different chakras and um, relating with one another in that practice. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me um, about you and your presence while I was there is you, you just had a very like grounded um, 
from what I perceived sense of, of being and, and just you were you. And, and there wasn't this like trying to be somebody else or um, put on some kind of performance. It was very much just you and your heart just, just was shining forward. And I, I remember talking to you a little bit um, throughout the practice. We, we had both stepped out of the room and um, just checking in with you. And you were just like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing good. And I'm also taking care of myself. And I think so often um, in those environments and in other environments, even people don't have the ability to uh, know when to just step out and, and take care of their own needs at times. And um, yeah, I just really was um, struck by how, uh, how you, you showed up in that space. So I wanted to name that and, and also um, to kind of get on track with what I like to start the episode with is how, how are you doing um, really? Uh, I'm doing very well. I'm surprisingly doing very well for all happening. Uh, I remember when we meet, uh, was you and Finn was awesome. Uh, I really enjoyed the idea of the workshop. One friend of mine that we have in common, he was who invited me. was a very, uh, very nice experience. Um, yeah, I love everything that you are saying. I, re- I remember that. From that moment to now, I in that moment, I just was a little more uncomfortable with the language. I barely say hi and bye. So I was formulating, drawing the words, word by word to speak with someone, and you was very kind to understand everything that I was saying. Uh, because uh, when you are in New York City, people is always running, people speak very fast. And when you are like, like me, that you are learning the language, not everybody has the time to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, you come to ask me, I ask where to you, and it was a very uh, nice spot of conversation in that moment, and, and it was a really nice workshop, I remember that. And um, I'm doing very well in, uh, in general. Uh, when all of this started happening one year ago, uh, I was a little overwhelmed for the situation because it's uh, all of this uh, that happening actually now in the world. Um, and when you are an immigrant, your priority is not how are you doing is how is doing your family out of the country. Especially when you are who support all your family. And so was a terrible moment emotionally. But I think that I survived all of that very well. So every time that someone asks me again, how are you doing? I'm really surprised. Like, okay, I'm doing very well. I'm doing better than how I was imagining that I would be doing. It uh, was a very nice year uh, in, in, in personal projects, except for everything happening around. was a very nice 2020 for me. I, I made a lot of projects in the year. I started uh, doing videos with my friends. I started a new book. I shared a lot of uh, new projects with the people. I, I think that in general, I think I'm doing very well. How are you doing? <laughs> Thank you. I um I want to ask where where is your family and and where uh, is your origin? My my grandpa is from Turkey. For that reason, I don't look like Latino, but I born in Venezuela. My, my grandmas, both of my grandmas are natives, 
from the Guayu and Arawak tribes in, in there, uh, born in Amazon, uh, that, we, that there we call Amazonia. Uh, after some age, I moved to the city, to the capital, Caracas, and I come to live in New York uh, five years ago with, with my partner, and we are uh, together here, just two of us. My grandpa raised in Venezuela, um, I think that was in 1923, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, he arrives in there, he buys some properties, he, he traveled uh, for all Europe because in that moment was uh, a lot of situations happening in the continent. So he comes to, he go to Venezuela and he meet my, my grandma. Um, she has many children in that moment from her um, past marriage. So she married again with him. Uh, has my mom that is actually her nine children. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of yeah, children. Yeah, we are a very big family. We are very big. I mean, I has in this moment, I has 11 nephews. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I'm giving nephews for gifts for, for the people. You want a gift? I can give you one of them. With all the <laughs> oh, I think I think you've shared um, that you're from Venezuela. Um, I may have shared with you my my dad is from Venezuela as well. He um, grew up outside of Valencia, and okay. um, in his twenties was uh, converted. He converted to Mormonism. And, and moved to the Central Valley of California um, to live with the, the missionary in the Mormon church that baptized him. And that's how he uh, came to uh, America and, and then later m- met my mother uh, shortly after he had moved here. But I am really curious about um, being a, a gay man in Venezuela, having a partner in Caracas, and just living there during all of the political kind of upheaval that was happening and, and also just knowing their um, at least a bit of how gays have been treated there and, and what your, yeah, what your experience was like. And yeah, it was, was really complicated. We can make a whole program about this with many episodes. Uh, was a very, it, I, I don't enjoy use the word, but the real word is was a horrible experience. Um, I, because I grew up in these uh, little tribes with other kind of people, uh, more more open minded in some way because the religion for them is is something uh, is something different. They are very open minded. Uh, we moved to the city when I was very child. Uh, I was very little with all my sisters, um, and we never had much money, so we we grew up in this little apartment with just one room, and I remember that was my mother, my, my dad, all my sisters, that they are five, and myself, in one little apartment. And so you are struggling with the economical situation in a country that is pretty difficult, but also... Uh, when you are, when you know that you are gay from very child, uh, it's incredibly complicated, especially when you are the last one because I am the minor. All my sisters are older than me, mm-hmm. 
So it's a lot of expectations on me. It's all the expectations that you are the boy, you are the man of the home, you are, uh, you are overwhelming with all of these in your shoulders because you have many sisters and everyone is, is, is just waiting that you grow up and you file a role that you don't really want to file. Everyone is asking you every day how many girlfriends do you have in the school and you're like, uh, I'm, I don't have really anyone and I'm not looking for, and actually that's not my type. <laughs> uh, the political situation is not very helpful. Um, after I come out when I was 18 years, that's a, a very a brave, terrible story was one day before my graduation of the high school, um, I decided to dye my hair uh, because my hair is a little like brown red. And I was in a military school. Mm -hmm. So everybody was always bullying me. Uh, and one day before of the graduation of the high school, I decided to dye my hair and make it uh, totally brown. Uh, when I come home, uh, my dad confronted me and asked me, if you are gay, tell me now, because this is not normal, just because I dyed my hair. Uh, we was struggling with that from when I was very child because I'm, I, I, I'm not... Um, I don't find the role, what, how they are looking for. It was like, I'm not like sports. I prefer to go to the school of arts. I'm not interested in these kind of things. I never has a girlfriend. So it was very obviously what they was always, you know, they have some kind of hope. And that night I say, first I say no. When he asked me because I was terrified. Mm -hmm. uh, because my dad is very, a big man, very muscular man. And, and I was terrified that he can push me or something. Uh, so I say, no. He come out of the room to speak with um, the um, husband of my sister. And I was crying in the room for like half hour, just thinking this is the opportunity, this is the time. If you don't do it now, where, when you will do it? So after half hour crying, I go out of the room and I say to him, um, uh, I need to speak with you because the answer is yes. As well of that, of that you ask me. So he take me to the room. He tell me how disappointed he was about me. Uh, he started to speak with my sisters, with my mom. And the next day was my graduation. And that was literally the last day of me leaving that home because they take me out. So I started uh, working. Uh, and I look for a little apartment. I start living with my friends. And the... All the situation in the country was very rude. Um, so it was pretty difficult to have a boyfriend or has uh, or be very open around. Uh, after that situation, I just started to have a terrible relationship with someone, uh, with, with another man. Uh, was a very toxic relationship for five years. And after that, I just started to um, trying to be free. So I just I just take a time like one or two years without a boyfriend, without hang out with my friends, just trying to focus in my work, in my empowerment, in let me look for an apartment, let me look for what I want to study in the college, 
let me graduate. So I was very focused on that. And after that, I started with my actual uh, partner. Uh, between that time, uh, I was with some boyfriend, but just for little times. Uh, now we are with together. We has like 10 or 11 years together. We don't really remember how much time we has. But yeah, it was, was pretty difficult uh, growing there because the level of discrimination in the country is, is very high. Um, the cops don't help too much. So if you are uh, di- discriminating your work or in the school for some reason related with homophobia or something, you can make a, you can uh, fulfill a paper. You can denounce the situation. You can speak in TV shows. So was in, in one moment you, we was struggling with that because we was together living in a little apartment. Uh, my partner is engineer, so he has a lot of expectations doing his work. And in a moment, we was just looking like, if we continue here, we want to pass the rest of our lives living in the same apartment without opportunities. We can't be married, so we can share the bank account. So probably we can never uh, go out of these situations. This will be our comfort zone for the rest of our lives. So if we want to live better, we need to go out wherever happens. And he decided to come to New York City to do um, a master. So we did the opportunity to come here. <laughs> That's quite the story. And I... Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to process, I know. <laughs> I mean, just imagining um, what that might have been like just starting from your childhood and being um, the youngest in your family, having five sisters um, yeah, and, and then having the kind of weight of being like the, this expectation of you being the man of the house. Um, and yeah, and- everyone is waiting that you find uh, the role and to, that you inherit the role of your father and you are the man in the home who give the orders and all of this. And it's good because Venezuela is, a, is in some way a very misogynistic country in some aspect that most of the archetype of the everything related with machis, uh, with the macho concept comes from the women, not, not too much from the fathers. The fathers are a little more patient in some way, but uh, mother, mothers in the country, they are always like, my child needs to be the man because... Everyone is looking, everyone is waiting, everyone, uh, you need to have child, you need to be married because I need to show off that he has uh, grandchildren. So they put all of this pressure on, on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. And when you are like eight years and you know that you don't like uh, girls, uh, but you are listening all of this speech day by day when you will have a girlfriend, how many child you will bring to home is a lot to process. Yeah. And and to just kind of highlight the the fact that that there is uh some of this like misogynistic kind of cultural um yeah way of being there and and I I know from my experience of my father, you know, he he actually didn't have a a, a dad who lived with him. He actually never met his his father and because he was the oldest um, boy, he there was this expectation for him to just automatically fill this role. And 
I'm not fully sure that he had some sort of a, a healthy male figure to look up to. He had a lot of mentors. He, yeah. he plays the cuatro, so the, the yeah. Venezuelan guitar. And um, I know that teachers really had an influence on his life and, and supported him. But I, I do just recall so much of uh, my childhood with him being fed first, him being at the head of the table, him um, having the say on what we can or cannot do. Like just, exactly. yeah, it, it just defer to the man of the house is, is basically kind of how he, he kind of held himself. And, exactly. and it, you know, for me, just being gay and, and also relating to your experience of just knowing from a young age, I was different. I, I, I didn't like women the same way that I was attracted to men. And, and then also having grown up in a religious household, I, I felt that pressure and that pressure just never fully, um, was lifted, uh, that, that I can remember, just growing up, you know, it was something I carried with me. And even after I'd come out, it's something that I carried with me. And I I wonder what what your experience has been like since coming out. You know, you made the decision you were going to dye your hair right before you graduated. You went through, I'm sure, a lot of uh, discrimination just based on who you are, how you held yourself. And correct me if I'm wrong. Um in school and and to finally come to a point where you were like, I'm going to be who I really am. And at the cost of potentially losing my family and the respect of my father, like what, what, what gave you the power to, to do that, to make that choice? To be honest, uh, in a moment, I just feel that I was, ja uh, I was just breaking myself. Uh, I, I was feeling like I was, between many walls and everybody's putting a wall around with all the expectations that it has on you. And I was trying to be flexible between all of these walls because I was also in a military school. Uh, they put me the, so this is the irony of, of this story. We are, we are, and that's the war. We are a very, we were a very poor family. We don't really have so much money. Uh, because also we are, we have so much. I mean, they has uh, five children before myself, and I grew when I was growing. My older sister starting to have children too, so it was a lot of money that you don't know from where comes, and they find a way to pay for my military school. Mm. So that's that's weird because for them was like a priority that I looked like the man of the home. Mm. And I was very delicate. When they asked me about uh, go for the college, I asked, I want to study art. Actually, I, I was accepted in the, the Red School, La Escuela Roja is the, uh, is the most, or was the most in that moment, famous school of art in Venezuela. And I was accepted in there and was very exclusive. They offered me money to study in there. Uh, my mom said no, because if I were to the school, probably I will be gay. Mm. So they so they choose send me there to the military school. And in the military school, it's a lot of discrimination. And, they are, and it's a lot of racism too. And 
he's all day with these soldiers. Many of them are actually gay. Um, something happened in the military school that was the moment when I just break. That was um, this lieutenant uh, was always uh, picking me, was always watching me. And every time that someone discriminates you or says something homophobic or puts you some kind of names, you are just struggling with that, but you can't say anything because if you say something, the militars uh, discriminate you too. I learned that from the first three years. I remember that my, the teacher of psychology, that because that was a class that we had, she was always saying, if you go to cry, cry in the bathroom. You have the right to cry, but do it in the bathroom. Don't let that anyone see you cry. Because we are militars, we are soldiers, you know, we are we are the strength of the country and blah, blah, blah. And this lieutenant, one time, in, bring me to his office because I was crying because they, they was putting names on me in, in, this, in, the, in the saloon. And he took me to the office. And this lieutenant was picking me from, like, for a whole year. And he literally tried to rape me. When this happens, my... System mode was immediately bite him. I, I bite him so hard in, uh, in the arm that I make him blow. He was bloating everywhere. Wow. And I go to the, um, when that happens, it's, it's a very long story, but I'm just giving you the short part. Uh, when that happens, I just go out of the office running. I left my backpack, I left, I left my hat in there. I just was running out of the school and everyone, all the teachers and people in the office was looking at me like, what, what happens? And just was trying to go out of there. In that moment, I has, I think that 15 or 16 years when that happens. And I was just running. Um, when I finally go to home, my mom said, see that I don't have my backpack, I don't have my hat, I have my uniform looking very, very bad. And she just asked me, I tried to say to them what happens, and they just say that I was creating lies to make them put me out of the military school because I was very delicate. Uh, and so after that, they put me, uh, they gave me more classes and they put me in another school for weekends. So I was receiving classes seven days a week in two different schools just to fulfill the role of the macho man at home. Mm. And after that, when we just had almost uh, graduate, when I was very close to graduate, they finally pulled me out and they transferred me to an, a different school. Then I was feeling more comfortable. I started to have friends who are sending me for who I am and they was there every time that I needed um, but when I was uh, this last week before graduate everyone in home was speaking about you will be a soldier you need to study this uh, we give you all the um, the money that you need to be a soldier because you need to bring some kind of I don't know honor dignity or Whatever to home because you are the man and you need to have children because all your all of your sisters has children too and your cousins and most of the, your cousins has children too and is everybody speaking about how you need to rule your life what they are ruling your life everybody is you need to put your hair in this way you need to dress in this way you need to work in this way you can listen to this kind of music you can go to these places you can ask these friends it's so much and I was. 
I was speaking with my friend in that moment, uh, this girl, she was my best friend in that moment, was of my best friends. We was speaking one day and she literally asked me, how do you feel? And because I was crying. And it's not like I'm crying because I am dramatic. It's because I'm really, I really cry for everything. <laughs> I, I, I am like that, to be honest. But that day I was totally crying all day. And she asked me, what happens now? And I say, I feel like I am inside of a little hole and all the walls are coming over me. Mm. And I can be more flexible. I literally am breaking. When I say that, she said, you need to be honest with the people because if not, you will you will be just pieces of you for everybody, but nothing go to see who you really are. And... That was two days before the graduation. The next day, I dyed my hair because I want to look different in the pictures. And the last, the next day, uh, that night when I come to home and they wash me with the hair, all of this happens. So uh, this this situation never stopped. I grow up, I find uh, a different job. I, I, I was working in different places. I. Uh, I finished the school, the uh, the university, all of this, uh, but always was the same situation. Every time that I go to, to visit home is when you will bring a girlfriend, when you will... Uh, they just try to make, like, nothing happens in home, mm. including when they finally knew who was uh, my partner and they knew, knew that I was living with him, they just ignored the situation. When you will be married, when you will be stop playing with that, when you uh, will bring uh, children to home because you are looking, uh, you are giving a bad name to the family, all of this. So in the end of the story, we don't have a really good relation. Uh, but all of this pressure is a combination of different aspects. It's the social aspect in the, uh, of the people. You know, nobody wants that your neighbor knows that you have a gay child at home, is the religious part, is uh, the family part, because you, uh, they are watching that all your cousins have, are being married and having children and you not, you are uh, playing with boys and uh, it, it's a lot of pressure. And I think that each one of these aspects was the walls around me coming over and it was really breaking in that moment. I was I was in a moment that I was just crying, not eating. I was very sad when they asked me why you go to study in the college. Was a moment when I was like, I really don't care. I really don't care what happens tomorrow. I really don't care because I I was feeling like I really don't have a life. I'm just living for them. Hmm. And I think that was that moment when I finally find that strength to say, okay, you know, I'm gay. I don't care what happens. I'm gay. So if so, I just feel like. Uh, if you don't do it now, you will literally, like my friend said, you will be just pieces for everyone. So this is a piece of Elohim for you. This is a piece of Elohim for you. But nobody really knows who is Elohim. Just hearing about your experience of, of being in school and having that lieutenant try and rape you. I'm just so grateful that there was some part of you that was able to escape and and to instinctively get yourself out of the situation before anything further was able to happen. And I, I just imagine there's just 
that experience being really traumatic to to go through and to to have your parents not believe you as if you're telling lies to get out of school and to not even consider that this may have happened and i just yeah there's a part of me that just wants to hold that that 16 year old you and just be like oh i'm so sorry that 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 had to happen yeah uh, to to be honest i don't speak about it for like 10 years after that happens i just started to speak about it like um four or no more like six or seven years ago when, I fi- when finally um, my partner was asking me something about the military school, um, I, I, he, he knew, he knows that I always have some kind of allergy to, to soldiers. When I see people in uniform, I just like, I have, I have a reaction. So one day he was in the bus, and some soldiers comes and he look at me having this uh, reaction. And I always say to him, uh, you know, it's the trigger. It's the trigger in there. And when we come home, I, I said, okay, um, you need to know this. So this happens. Uh, so I had this traumatic experience. And this happens at uh, that time. Um, so I never speak about it before. So you need to know this just in case. And after that, I have in a relationship with a terrible person too. So you need to know all of these parts of me because I have many triggers and I'm working on in all of these at the same time and you need to know all of that. So you one day just look at me and I'm totally in silence in, in, in the coach watching TV and I don't want to speak is because someone te- just touched the trigger. Mm-hmm. It's just that. And and to have have your your friend who, you know, really like heard you that that listened when you were telling her about the experience of just feeling like you're in this hole and all the everything was just kind of caving in on you and she she just encouraged you to to not live for other people's expectations um just seems like a an an angel of sorts who who's kind of there in your life yeah yeah she's and and to to also come to a point and and realization around being able to acknowledge that past experience of of when you were sixteen and to be able to communicate that with people you're in relationship with that's it's really vulnerable and I I imagine just yeah I, I hope that they were able to the 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 ones that you, you shared that with were able to just hold you in that and, and not judge you or, or make you wrong for anything and, and just love you. Um, and I also, I wonder with your experience of finally being in this, this relationship that you're currently in and from what I gather, doing the work that you're doing on yourself, like, do you envision, and, and maybe you've already started to do this, but but kind of reconciling your relationships, repairing your relationships with your family. Maybe you 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 have pretty solid relationships with them, some of your sisters. Um, I'm, yeah, I just I'm curious how how that is. With the time, I just accept um, because everyone says, and we have this social speech that. 
you need to be able to be there always for your family and everything for the family and always about the family. And in some part of the way, I was just asking myself, what really is family? Also, the person who live with you and you don't really know what is the reason why they are there. Um, so it's like, this is coincidence. This is a lesson of the universe that they put these persons around. So I have some communication with my with two of, or my, of my sisters. And I, I speak sometimes with my dad. Um, but we never speak about these kind of things. Uh, everybody just uh, do like, oh, they speak with my nephews. Like, okay, you have someone calling the United States who will uh, be calling sometimes. So you ask, you just take the phone and speak with him. It's, it's practically that. I have a very good relation with my with my nephews. Actually, two of my nephews are autist, and I have the better relationship ever with them. We are practically brothers. Um, but except for them, I don't really have much, uh, very much deep in the relation with, with my family. So with the time, I just accept that not all the people that is in your life need to be there. Some people is there to love you. Some people just not. Um, sometimes you have um, like the responsibility to show the people how they need to learn how to love. But you can't. Uh, obligate or pressure the people to be like you. So the fact that I am the person who I am, this don't, don't give me the right to come to say, okay, you need to love me just because I'm not. I'm not. I just accept that some people is different and everybody has their own situations in their life. And I need to respect that they have uh, probably their own triggers in, in their life. Uh, so they, they have... In, I accepted in some way the same pressure that I has growing with all of this inside. Probably they have some pressure too from the society because all societies watching you, especially in a country like Venezuela. In Venezuela, when you say, because I see this scenario many times, when you say that you are gay, everybody immediately assumes that something wrong happens in home. Yeah. Oh, you don't have a father, it's for that. Oh, uh, something passed with your mother is for that. Oh, you was uh, very spoiled in your childhood. This is because you have very bad parents. So it's for that. It's for that that you are gay. This is the speech that everybody says. Mm. Uh, so I just accept that they are different people from a different age, uh, in some way from different worlds. Literally, the one connection that we have is religious. It's just for uh, or magic or things about magical traditions and that this is the one relation that we have and just just that. Mm -hmm. And I imagine your experiences in your life have, have really shaped who you are now and the work that you do. And I'm curious what what kind of got you into uh, becoming a magic worker and and kind of exploring that that realm. Yeah. I, the first years of my life was uh, between people who work with these uh, cacao ceremonies, ayahuasca ceremonies, tobacco ceremonies. Um, so you, I, I have some background from there uh, in, in my mind. I, I try to remember my childhood. I just remember these, these goods, the people uh, crafting the herbs. Uh, tourists paint lots of money for these therapies um, because they, they really uh, help them in some way. Uh, when we moved to the city, 
my mom, uh, she she always was in this um, in some way magical path uh, because she has a, a auntie. This auntie about every who everyone speaking family was this. They describe her like a some kind of fairy. Oh, oh, this is this is auntie. This is they have pictures of her. She travels around the world. She speaks so many languages. She she reads the tarot cards. She makes magic. She makes potions. She has so many lovers, and everyone speaks about her so much. And my mom grew up with her, so my mom learned one of or two things. In a moment when my mom was very sick, when I was very child. She was sick. She was incredibly sick, and we never knew what really she has. She go with the doctor, and she go with another doctor, with a neuroscientist. She traveled to Colombia. She traveled to many countries trying to know what she really has, and no one really know what she has. Um, one day she visit the the tombs. This is a story. She visit the tombs of of her auntie, bring some flowers. She starting to drink with her. Um, She is trying to remember some recipes from from the auntie. Okay, you need to make these dried herbs with infusion with this honey or milk or something, and you need to try this and visit this person. So she is starting to go very deep in this path, and she is starting to be initiated in different magical paths. She was initiated in Venezuelan spiritualism. She was initiated in Candomblé. She was initiated in Paloma Yombe. She was initiated in Lucumi. She was initiated in everything that was in her hands. And she comes in a very well-known, powerful person in some way. She has many clients. And in all my sister was working in that path too. I was there. I was learning all of that. And I always knew things. I always... Uh, The apartment is some kind of magical place. When people come to the apartment of my, of my mom, it's always so many stories about ghosts and things that the people see. And I grew up with that. So for me, it was a little natural. No, no, was something forced. No, was something really discovered. It was, not, was something that I just give for granted because it was there. I grew up with these books. I read many of them. When I was like um, 12 or 13, because I remember I was my first year in the military school, I was starting to read the tarot cards. And after that, I started with the spell casting and this kind of work. And when my mom knew, when she discovered that I was doing so many things, she tried to put me to her, to be like her assistant in, in this thing. So I was traveling with them to these places in Venezuela, like, uh, The Butterfly River, La Mariposa, is a magical place that we have in Venezuela, or the Sorte Mountain in Yaracuy. Uh, these are very popular places for witches who travel around the world to visit these places. And I was meeting all of these amazing people, clairvoyants, psychics, uh, witches, magicians, santeros, spiritualists, uh, many priests from different religions. So uh, I learned things from them. And when I come to the United States, this continues being my background because I never presented with the people like, okay, I stood publicist, uh, I stood marketing or, or nothing like that. It was always a magic worker. And I always giving recipes to my friends. Uh, my 
I have many teachers in the school who after I was, uh, after my fathers take me out of home, I started to have a very good relationship with the teachers of the military school who know what soldiers, the mm. civilians. <laughs> I started to have a very good relation with them. Uh, the teacher of math, the teacher of history, they come to my little apartment to receive readings. Uh, they continue being um, very good clients. They come very often, and with the time, they just starting to speaking with their friends. In a moment, I just stopped working in, in a normal, uh, typical job because I have so many clients that I, I starting to just be able to keep my things going with that. So that was my work in that moment, and this continues being my work in this moment. Hmm. It sounds like your your aunt and and your mom had a big influence on on you um, coming into this work, you know. And it's kind of I think it's ironic that your mom also wanted you to to be the yeah. yes, you know, the yeah. man, yeah. And then also her assistant, and there there's obviously some sort of like. Um, Imagine in her, like her seeing your, your gifts and, and also sitting with this idea of what the, the man of the, the family should look like, but also holding this you, you know, as, as a gifted um, person who. It's a little, it's a little weird situation about religion because. Family, my family practice these Afro-Caribbean religions. Is uh, everyone is initiated in Candomblé, in Umbanda, in Lukum, in some of these paths. And these religions, these Afro-Caribbean religions, they has a tendency to be all the power for the men. So, uh, ironically, uh, in home is like you need to fulfill this role. You need to be the macho man in home because you are the man of the home. But at the same time, in the from the perspective of the religion, uh, they was like proud that I was in the war. Mm-hmm. So it's complicated because, for example, for my when my sisters they are older than me, and when my sister was trying to initiate in this path, the initiation something like about this for the Catholics is if mm-hmm. well, if you are not initiated, you are not uh, a recognizable person in the path. And when my sister was like 30 years and they want to be initiated in the path, they can't because all of these religions for rule say that the man of uh, the brother need to be initiated before because they are women. So their rights are below my rights. Um, so like, like, like I say, it's... Uh, they have expectations on you, but when it's about religion, they was proud in some way because when they made these meetings uh, to celebrate the Sabbaths or something, was like, oh, Elohim is ja-. yeah, he was initiated, he was very good in the initiation, he's amazing, he did the tarot card better than me, and they were, so it was complicated for me as a dad because when they are in a conversation about witchcraft, magic, esoterism, and astrology is like, oh, yeah, he's awesome. But in home, really inside in home, no, was like that. was a, mm-hmm. another reality. 
in the moment mm -hmm. that they just cross the door was they just shift the personality. Mm. Yeah, and it just seems so complex and and kind of confusing to kind of be in that that situation, you know, feeling celebrated and honored, you know, and looked up to in some ways and then when that shift happened feeling like, whoa, where like where did that yeah. go and why? Yeah, I remember one time in a conversation, they was speaking about how proud they was about me. And they was speaking with um, the, the priest, who is in some way the grandparent of my mom. And they was speaking about, yeah, he was initiated, now he will be in the initiation of her sisters. We are so proud of him because he's very good. Ah, and he made all of this, but yeah, he made all of that. Oh. So, so we are now waiting that he is starting to have so many girlfriends and he will be bring so many childs to home and all of them will be so awesome like him. So, and all of this conversation was in public. Mm. And, and it was like, okay, this, this note was really good for me. And when they come home was, okay, um, you have a girlfriend when you will have, uh, when you will have it. When we will know your girlfriend, who is your girlfriend? It was like, I never have a girlfriend. I, I, don't, I don't have one. Uh, why not? I think that is for very obvious reasons. And it was like, okay, we need to look for a girlfriend for you. So they just delete everything that I mm -hmm. say, and they just accept the little parts that was more convenient for the conversation. There's maybe some denial <laughs> exactly, in seeing who you really are. I, uh, I wanted to, to maybe just have you share a little bit about your book that you've written, if you're open to doing that um, with the listeners. Uh, okay. Um, I write uh, my new book. Uh, it's coming out in July. It's Manifestation Magic. Uh, it's nothing very deep like this conversation, for real. <laughs> it's a little more superficial than that. Um, Manifestation Magic is my is is the ninth book that I write, and it's this five or six book that someone published that a publisher take. Um, comes out in July. It's a book about the man the mindset of the money. Is um, when it's about magic and sorcery. We has many taboos in society about the money about. Money is bad, money is grown, being abundant is, is grown, you can have money, money is the evil, money corrupts the people. We have all of these taboos in our minds. Uh, I grew up, like many people, with these taboos in my mind. If you have so much money, you will be a grown people, you will be the evil. Uh, I remember that in Venezuela, and also in Colombia, and in Argentina, I was in Argentina one time, people have this quote that they always repeat over and over to the children. It's better be humble and has dignity that has money. You don't need money in your life. Mm. So we grow up with that system of beliefs in our minds. And this is like, imagine that you have a lover and you say every day to this lover who are there for you, I don't really need you. I don't really want you. You are bad for me. So if love is expression of energy, it's a manifestation of your inner love in their lives. You manifest this love that you have in the way of a lover that you bring to your life. If love is an energy, if healing is some kind of energy, if protection is an energy, if you can craft a spell 
to see the past and heal your ancestors and heal your relation with your family. If all of these are kinds of energy and we listen to science and science say that everything is made in some way of energy, money should be energy too. Money should be a frequency. So what I tried to do in this book was I write a whole book about money magic that is practically just a space for money. And after that, I wrote a whole introduction of like 100 pages about make exercise and a little therapy for the reader. The therapy consists in, okay, you want to bring money to your life. So you need to accept money in your life. You need to accept abundance in your life. So let me know why you think that you don't have money. Because many times I have clients for experience who come to, to my home looking at space because I am in the same job for the last 10 years and I continue receiving the same money. And I am the most experienced person in there. Or I'm not doing so much money and or I have clients who has many places, many locals, restaurants, um, theaters, I don't know, things here in New York City and they are struggling with money. So it's like how a, a regular random person in the street who keep a normal job and make like $500 a week is more ha- is happier than you that are making so much money and sh- you should be living with some literal calm in your life because mm-hmm. yeah, money don't, don't um, with money you can't uh, buy happiness, but money helps you to buy some calm while you are looking for the happiness. So I make some exercise in the book. Uh, the book starts with an introduction of for, for the reader is, what is money for you? It's not what do you think is money, it's what's money for you. So I always make this exercise with, with, in, in the workshops that I made, and I say to everybody, okay, after the workshop, you will make a, a list in your home. You will light a, a candle, you will take a paper, and you will write 21 things that you think about money. And and after each one of these lines, you will write to why do you think that? Oh, money is bad. Why? Tell me why. Money is a wrong thing. Why? Money is not helpful. Why? Money uh, is very good for life. Why? What makes you think that and from where comes that thought? Because we has when we are growing, we have a lot of garbage in our minds that someone else put there and no one else come to take that garbage. So we continue growing, um, justifying everything for the things that we have in our minds. And many times, these thoughts that we have are very old for our own conception and for our own benefit. So people write these things and after that, they can meditate about it. Okay. I was thinking, for example, I had this person who come to one of my workshops last year, and after make the exercise, come to my chat and say, okay, Elohim, I really cry at the end of the list because I pass all my life saying that money is bad, and I'm literally struggling with money. I am the owner of three different stores in New York City, and I'm literally struggling with, with the money. I don't know what happens with that, but now that I am analyzing, I really trade the money like something wrong. Money is wrong, money is bad. Why? Because all my life I grow up listening that money is wrong, money is bad, because it's, that is what my father said to me every time. Mm-hmm. So I has 
many sources of money now, but I never enjoy the money. Yeah, you are not enjoying the money because you think that money is bad. It's like a drug. Mm-hmm. You, you, in the moment that you take a bill in your hands, you grow up listening this, that, that if you take the bill, now you need to wash your hands because the bill is dirty. That mm-hmm. in some way is true, but that is not the word that you need to use. So the, when you receive some money, some bills in your hands, you put the, boy, the money uh, in a side and you want to wash your hands. You are literally washing your hands from the abundance because you don't want it. So what I do is show to the people to create a new mindset on money. And after that, you can hit your relation with money. You can start to bring some abundance because universe is abundance in everything, in stars, in light, in darkness, in everything. And we have the same element from the moment of the creation. From the moment of the Big Bang, we have literally the same number of elements in the universe. In the, in the universe, the same in the planet Earth. We have literally the same element from the moment that the Earth was created. Nothing is coming new, nothing is coming down. Everything is transforming in the Earth. So the same is with the money, the same is with the gold. All the elements are in there just moving from hand to hand, from one person to another. With money and abundance, is the same. You, are, you just need to accept that you are a, manif- a manifestation of the divinity. And when you accept that, you understand that you are a source. You are not just a body with a whole, a lot of things inside of you. Also, you are a source, bringing abundance and prosperity and love and energy to the world. And that aspect about healing yourself is very helpful because you understand that, okay, I was thinking in money in a bad way. Now that I know that money is not my enemy, money is my friend, I can bring money to my life and help my family and help my friends and have a new, better apartment and these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I hear you talking about like really looking at what our beliefs are around our relationship with money and and getting to the the core of what the beliefs are and and finding ways to shift that so yeah. that we can have a healthier relationship with it not have these beliefs that it's bad or dirty or we don't deserve it um and i, I i'm excited to to learn more uh, about that i'll share my own um just relationship with money has been Somewhat challenging. I I feel like also growing up in a, a household where, you know, at times my my parents had a, a pretty decent amount of money coming in, and I think I picked up on their kind of relationship with money, their belief systems, and my mom was very good about budgeting and. Um, my dad kind of had this mindset of, well, if I have it, I'll spend it and and yeah. more is going to come. And it's interesting to kind of have both of those on my shoulder. Like I, I think yeah. about my mom who's like, let's budget, let's think ahead, let's plan, let's save. And then I have my dad who's just like, oh, I got all this money, I'm going to spend it. Yeah. And I, you know, from a young age had experiences of when I got kicked out of um, the house using credit cards and then getting myself into credit card debt and for years not paying that off and eventually reaching a point where I was like, I'm going to address this. Like I want <laughs> to be in right relationship with 
the the creditors and myself and and start to work on healing my relationship with money and you know I got to a really good place where I paid off my debt I started to build up my credit again and I, a couple of years ago found myself again in another situation where I got myself into a lot of debt and um, about a year ago was just at this point where I I was like, how am I going to pay this off? The interest just keeps building and building. And by just synchronistic events, I, mm-hmm. I came across um, an organization in the Bay Area that, that works with people on, on debt management and have been working with them since. And I'm working on, again, getting that debt paid off. And I think there's this um, part of me that that is afraid, you know, once I, I do get out of debt, like will these uh, patterns, I, I'll call them, uh, continue to happen? And, and I even think about just the struggles with being in this pandemic and not yeah. working at the same capacity and receiving unemployment, but also support from clients and, and people in my life um, just because that unemployment is very little um, in regards to my costs of living. Um, and I, I just think it's so complex and we all have different relationships with it. You know, some some people kind of come into this world without having exactly. to think twice about it you know it's just kind of it's been provided for them and and they have they will be provided for throughout the rest of their life and i i also think about people who are currently just struggling so much with exactly. with being able to provide for their families to put food on the table to pay their rent um because they're unable to work and I, yeah, you know, I, I think there's a lot of amazing um, people that are donating money, their, their time, their services to support disenfranchised groups of, of people. And I, I just, I guess I'm, I'm hoping for something even larger to kind of shift um, in the collective so that we are supporting one another more because it's it's just really sad to see the rise in homelessness and yeah um and and just the the poverty um especially in larger cities you know living in san francisco up until may of this of last year that like i had lived there for almost 14 years and when i first moved there there was homeless people but not nearly as much as there was when I moved. There was just, it was so much, so many tents, so many, um, yeah, encampments around the city. And, and, and that's one of the wealthiest cities, you know, exactly. like it's so unfortunate. Yeah. It's, it's a combination between the, the hard work because you need to be constant I mean, the fact that you think in money, this don't mean that you will have the money. You always need to work because the money needs to come from from somewhere. It's like 
you believe in love, but if you don't have a lover, how you can believe in love? It's the same thing with the money. If you don't have a work, you can produce the money. The thing is, when you are in the work, how I can keep this work? How I can evolve in this work? How I can continue receiving this, this same amount of money or more from outside of this work in the future? How I can evolve in this situation? In the same time, happens. Uh, this happens in San Francisco, happens here too in New York City. I'm not sure in comparison if it's more or less, I really don't know. In Venezuela, it's the same. In Venezuela, we have a problem that it has uh, one time. I remember that the government was doing some campaign and the campaign of the government, you know, it's, it's a socialist government. And they have this conception about being rich is bad. So all the campaign for the two years of campaign was both for us because both for the rich people is both for the evil. So as people are starting in the street repeating the same speech over and over. In a moment, they started to teach this in the schools, in the public schools. So you see all these children repeating over and over, yeah, we don't need money in life because money is for bad people. In the end, now we have a very poor country struggling with food, with money, with health, with everything. But in the same time, is that is for a side who has uh, poor opportunities to make money because we don't have a source of employment there. We don't really have because all the people is going out of the country. And in the same time, you are putting in the minds of very young people this mindset that you don't need to work because uh, the government will give you everything so you can depend on the government. So when the government don't have money, you don't have money. So they stop looking for jobs because they are always waiting that the government in some way give them money. Here in the United States, the situation is pretty different because here is a lot of opportunities. The difference is that to reach these opportunities, they are incredibly exigent. And sometimes, and I am immigrant and I admit that, sometimes they don't see uh Equally, the way how you give these opportunities to your own people. They prefer to give the opportunities to people from outside. And this is, and this is very complicated because your focus, this is more, more political, sorry, mm-hmm. but, but the focus should be, okay, if my family is not doing well, I can help other family. And the government here is a little more cold. It's like we need to have developed people for this, so we bring try to bring people from outside, and we don't really care if the people are staying in, in the streets. It's, it's that, essentially. Mm. Well, this was political. It's not have anything to do here. <laughs> well, I, I want to say thank you so much um, for just sharing some su- such personal uh, experiences throughout our, our time together. And um, sharing about your your work and um, your your new book that's going to be coming out in July, and I um, yeah I wanted to just ask you if there's any last kind of thing you want to leave the listeners with. Um, uh, please be safe and stay well. Please try to stay warm in your home. Please try to be supportive with everyone, especially with your friends and your family in every project that they are doing or 
trying to create because if we don't support each other, who will do it? So try to be how supported you can. Uh, try to share uh, podcasts, books, uh, music from your friends that they are trying to create something new because the world uh, belongs to the people who really believe in other people. Don't believe, don't, the, the world don't belong to people who are just thinking on them every time. Mm. Such wise words. <laughs> Thank you. I have my yeah. moments. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to How Are You Doing Really? If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, you can find the various platforms on my website, as well as additional information about me and the work that I do in this world at samsebastian.com. That's S-A-M-S-E-B-A-S-T-I-A-N.com. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review on whichever platform you listen to us on. I want to give a special shout out to Dominique Ferraton for helping with the production of this podcast. Additionally, to Nico Holloman for creating the music. If any of you are interested in being a guest on the show, you can reach out to me directly at sam at samsebastian.com. May you all be well. May you be loved. May you be at ease. Until next time.